Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. Great to see you. With me is Pastor Wes Peppers from It Is Written. Great to see you. Great to be here again. Oh, we've got some more questions to answer. We do. If you have a question you'd like to submit, you can email us at lineuponline at iiw.org. So let's start at the beginning with a question from Arlene. Why'd the devil feel the need to approach Eve to tempt her and not Adam? Careful what you say. Yeah, that's Get a good question. In trouble. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Half the world's population might be mad at me, right? Yeah. Well, the Bible doesn't say actually that the devil approached Eve. No. It says that he was stationed in the tree. Eve left the side of Adam and was venturing off by herself. And really, some people pick on Eve for that, but really wouldn't have been a good idea for Adam to leave her either. That's either correct. one of them would have been not a good idea. And so when she left and wandered off by herself, that's when the devil began to speak to her. And we know the result of that. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. So, uh, yeah, the devil spoke to her when she left the area that God had given her and went near where he was. Yeah, it seems to me that if Adam had been the one get there first, the devil might, have, might well have gone after him. Yeah, that's right. Can Michael ask us a question? This is a very sensitive question. If you find yourself in a physically abusive relationship as a child of God and you try all the counsels possible on earth and there's no change, would it be in harmony with the Word of God to eventually get divorced and remarried? If not, what's your recommendation for such a situation? Okay, Michael, thanks for asking the question. I can't know if you're asking about you or because this affects somebody else. I don't know. Either way, this is counsel for everybody. The first thing is, whoever this relates to, I'm extraordinarily sorry that you find yourself in that situation. That's got to be absolutely devastating. In fact, I'm going to say this. If you, whoever you might be, are someone who is a perpetrator of physical violence within a relationship, a marriage relationship, please stop. Please get help. Don't be abusive. Take responsibility. Grow up. Get help, see somebody, understand that there are some lines that must not be crossed. And physical abuse is absolutely one of them. It's not acceptable ever. Now, if you're the victim, you're saying, I've done everything I can, but the physical abuse just continues. What do I do? What, see, what you've done is you've gone to the place we said is divorce. Okay, we're going to stay away from that. We're not going to advise you to get divorced. That, that's not for us to do. But what we are going to do is advise you to get to a safe place. Uh, now, I would also advise you to speak to more people than just me. Talk to a counselor, a minister of the gospel, a trusted friend, because I understand that this can be fraught with difficulty and danger. We want to recognize that and acknowledge that. If you're in a physically abusive situation, figure out how to get out. Or go to someone else and say, please, can you figure out how to get me out? You don't need to stay there. You don't have to stay there. And anyone who says, oh, I'm sorry that I've been beating you for 18 years. I promise I'll change. Your job 
is to not trust them. They haven't been trustworthy for 18 years. Don't believe that all of a sudden they're going to flip a switch because you're no longer there to wash their socks or put milk on their cereal. Forget it. Get out. But be as responsible as you possibly can. Get wise advice and lots of it. And of course, pray, 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 pray. And beg God to make his leading clear and to provide you with protection and with guidance. Okay, here's a question from, I'm going to say, Andy. Andy asks, Does secular music have a place in a Christian's life? (laughs) Please share verses to support. Oh, we can do that. Kind of depends on what you mean by secular music. You know, if your secular music is Megan the Stallion, I would say, um, no, there's no place in the Christian's life for music that's vile and vulgar and sensual and so forth. No place. But, and, and you know, you know what I just did. I've, 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 anyway, you'll see what I just did. <laughs> Beethoven is secular. Mm-hmm. I want a religious cat. Mendelssohn, Bach and Brahms and Liszt and Wagner, that's secular. But I bet you weren't thinking about that. Classical music is secular. By the way, there's some classical music that drives me mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure. certain if I listen to it a moment longer, someone's going to get injured. That's you know, right. Because That's right. yes. So n- not all classical music, I think, is, is good for your sanity. Um, but beyond that, is there secular music? I mean, are there secular music? Oh, man, I, I'm, I'm not going to recommend secular jazz. Jazz is jazz. I can't imagine Jesus jamming with a jazz band. Can you? Jesus on the stage with ACDC, Jesus at a, at a concert for, I mean, I don't know who. I don't even know who. No. But we'll give you a Bible verse. Here's a Bible verse. It's from Philippians 4 and verse 8, or it is Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. The reason people get hung up on secular music, you know why? Because it's good. It's good, yeah, that's right. Because it's good. Mm -hmm. Not everybody finds it good, but those who find it good find it really good. Mm -hmm. The devil's been working with music for 6,000 years, and he got down here to this point in time, and he knows what presses your buttons. Mm -hmm. And he's worked with you over years to get you ready to introduce music into your life that's going to be soul-destroying. And it is. It's soul-destroying. Now, me... I I can't fathom why people listen to hip-hop. But you know why? Because I'm the age I am. If I was 16, I'd probably think it's, it's cool. Thing on earth. Yeah. yeah. It's not. Mm-mm. I think about that like my father used right. to think about the music I listened to. Mind you, the music I listened to was really good. I mean, object- yeah. <laughs> objectively <laughs> sure. good. <laughs> it was bad for you. Yeah. I don't get it. But some people do. The person who really understands it is the devil. Mm-hmm. So um, he's got a he's got a certain kind of genre of music for every for everyone, personality. Right. Yeah. Doesn't matter who you are. He's got the biggest jukebox in the yeah, world. Yeah, that's right. You know, we used to listen to heavy metal music before we go out and play football on Friday nights. Would. Yeah, and uh, get you jazzed up and get you pumped up and yeah. angry and get your adrenaline going. And Footballers do it today. That's what it does. Yeah, and so um, I wouldn't recommend that if you're trying to keep peace in your family. Yeah, before you go to a family outing or a family reunion, 
uh, to listen to that. It's going to stir up all that, those emotions in you. So, yeah, that's a great principle, not just for music, but for entertainment of any kind, television, books, reading, whatever. Just do those things that you know are going to strengthen your journey with God yeah. and leave off the other things. They're yeah. just not helpful. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I don't know too many I just said I don't know too many deeply spiritual people who listen to a whole bunch of secular music. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I really just that's don't. Right. I remember 20 years ago I was at a church holding some meetings and a little girl was in the church cleaning. I guess she was helping her mom and dad clean the church and she was listening to something. I didn't know what. I said, oh, you're listening to some music. She goes, yeah, it's Dire Straits. It's my dad's favorite. Uh, I mean, anyone who's familiar with Dire Straits, I mean, as far as secular music goes, it's a secular, secular, but I mean, it's it's not, it's not, it's not, Led Zeppelin, you know. But what had happened was Dad was giving his little girl a taste for what's secular. He's force-feeding secular music into her head. And and Dire Straits is a gateway drug. Today, Dire Straits, tomorrow, I don't know, some musician whose name would, they'd probably want me to mention, but I won't. You're just better off without it. And the reason people ask questions, I'm not, I'm not getting on to Andy. The reason people ask these questions is because they like it. Yeah, sure. That's all. They love it. And look, human nature loves it. Human nature loves those things. But we're called to battle against those things that are damaging to our souls. Now, interestingly, I just want to mention this. 100, 200 years ago, secular music had a whole different tune. Many times they were singing about home and country and and uh, you know character yeah. and, and people that did great things and there's some of that secular music today you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't look down on yeah that's right yeah, you, that's would, you right. wouldn't be against but most of it today is talking about sex and and bad actions and all kinds of divorce and whatever else and it's just not profitable there's nothing you can't point to anything in the, many of those songs and say this is helpful for me in my christian growth yeah it's better to leave it off yeah and man i'm guaranteeing you there's a lot of parents who have no idea of what's in the lyrics of the songs kids are listening to today. That's right. When we were kids, I mean, you're older than me, but when we were kids, the music was bad enough. Mm-hmm. It was suggestive. Mm-hmm. Now it's just flat out vulgar. That's right. There's no secrets or there's no hints today. They just say it every time yeah. straight up. Yeah. And I understand. I, I, I ran in a certain direction with this question, but you're asking about secular music. You're, you're probably not asking about banjo music. You're right. right. That's right. You're probably not asking about line dancing, even though they think that's madness too. Um, I know what you're asking about. So you choose Jesus' way, and I think you'll be okay. Okay, Lewis or Louis is asking a question that we probably don't have time for. Not fully, at least. So let's make a start. Mm-hmm. How should a Christian who's struggling to connect with God after greatly backsliding deal with suicidal thoughts, thoughts of self-harm? Yeah, that's a very sensitive question. Um, First, we're sorry if that's sorry. you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's tough. And I want you to know that there's power in God, power in prayer. Have people pray for you. Uh, you don't want to walk this journey alone. What do you advise, Lewis? Yeah, first off... Um, you know, praise the Lord that you're having the desire or the thought to come back to God. That's exciting. That's good to know. That means the Spirit of God is drawing you, and that means that God still wants you. And the struggle is real because the devil doesn't want to let you go easily. He just doesn't want to let you go, and he's going to do everything he can to keep you in his ranks and in his claws. 
But you must know that it's never the will of God for you to be harmed or for you to hurt yourself or end your life. God wants you to have life. So you can know for sure that those thoughts are not coming from him. I got a message the other day from somebody who said, uh, you got to pray for me because I'm thinking of killing myself. I engaged in dialogue with this person and they said, after all I've done, how can I forgive myself? Don't get me started on that because you've heard me say before, you can't forgive yourself. You're not supposed to forgive yourself. You're just supposed to accept God's forgiveness. When people say, how do I forgive myself? What they're really saying is, how do I live with what I've done? Okay, if you've done something awful, it's difficult to live with. But here's what you do. God accepts you. The reason people end their lives is usually because they think they have no future. Mm -hmm. If you'd stop and think that in Jesus you have an eternal future, of eternal life stretching before you. Get some help. Remember those Bible stories of people who came back from a long way back. And remember your future. Oh, look at your past. Everybody's got a past. You ask Wes about his past. Oh, you ask me, I don't want to go there. We're looking forward to our future, right? Yeah, that's right. And God says he has a future and a hope for us. And that passage in Jeremiah was given in the context of people who had done great wickedness. I think about Deuteronomy chapter 30, where God says, if there's anyone who goes under the farthest parts of heaven, yes. so God's saying about as far away as you can go, if you turn your back towards me or turn your face back to, to me, I will receive you. I'll meet you right there. And so that's good news. Mm-hmm. And so we want to fill our hearts and our minds with those thoughts and those verses and know that God wants life for us and yeah. not death. Lewis, the best is yet to come. Uh, your question struggling to connect with God after greatly backsliding. And I think that's the foundation on what this is, which this is built, your unfortunate challenge right now. So you backslid. So did Manasseh, so did David, so did Solomon. I'm not diminishing. I'm saying people come back from that. If you would in your mind see a picture of a loving God accepting you and welcoming you into his heart, you are the prodigal son. Where was the father in that story? ran up the road to meet the boy, welcome him back and give him full authority. I don't know that telling you that removes this mountain, but it's a starting place. You're accepted by God. Oh, I've backslidden greatly. Yes, you have. People do. I shouldn't have done it. No, you shouldn't. But people do. What's done is done. Now God is saying, would you let me do what I haven't done? And that's take away all that sin and put hope in your heart. You can be hopeful today because God loves you in spite of what you've done. He loves you. He won't quit loving you. You give God a chance. That's all. Give God a chance. And watch him come through for you greatly and do magnificent things. We'll be back with more in just a moment. He's Wes Peppers. I'm John Bradshaw. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This season on Conversations. Many times I think I know what God wants or doesn't want me Mm -hmm. to do, and many times it's the opposite. I was uh, looking uh, next to the car. There's this family with a little ugly car. You know, I would never have, but I saw the family. They're so happy. They're laughing and giggling. I said, Lord, this is, that's what I, I want. Jesus just had this warm, loving feeling that I just couldn't describe and I wanted it more than anything in this world and I knew he was the answer. I don't know how I knew. I just knew he was the answer. Amen, amen. She is Gail Habakam. His name is Dr. George Guthrie. She once was a practitioner of Santeria. I'm John Bradshaw and this is Our Conversation. 
Now available on itiswritten.tv. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I am John Bradshaw. I have the good fortune of sitting alongside Wes Peppers. We together have the good fortune of answering your Bible questions, and we appreciate you sharing them with us. We've got another one right here, and it comes from Adam. Adam asks, how can we say that Christ died for us? He adds a little information about uh, he was crucified by the high priests and officials for the accusation of claiming to be the Son of God. That was the background to his death in, in a certain sense. So why did he die for us when he, was, when he died for some trumped-up criminal charge? How did he die for us? Yeah, because uh, you know the Bible through the prophecies indicated that long before he was even born, that the whole purpose of him coming to this earth was to live and die for our sins. And so the Bible says that uh, very clearly. And, uh, you know, the way that God orchestrated that was he was condemned by, of course, the Jews yeah. and then the and then Romans uh, through Pilate. And then he was put on the cross. So God allowed that method to come. And he was uh, he was killed by crucifixion, obviously. Th- those circumstances are kind of immaterial. How he got there, what he right. did was he got there. That's right. And he, the divine son of God, died bearing our sins. First Corinthians 15, verse three says Christ died for our sins. It can't get a whole lot plainer than that. Don't be confused by the circumstances. Well, he was really died. He, he was really crucified because he claimed to be the son. No, that was a trumped up charge. He, he, that was, a, was all a lie. It was a kangaroo court. Why did Jesus go along? You know, there are other times they tried to kill Jesus in Nazareth, took, up on him, took him up on a high hill. We're going to throw him off. He slipped through the, through the crowd and got away. It wasn't his time. That was his time. He died for the sins of the world. Um, the lies surrounding his court trial really don't matter too much. Yeah, that's right. Okay, Ella asks, Since the thoughts of the dead perish at death, when they are risen by God, will they regain their thoughts? What do you mean? Oh, old thoughts, I guess. Considering that we will know our family, friends, and loved ones, do you believe that their thoughts and memories will pick back up from whatever their last thoughts were before death, whether good or bad? Uh, interesting. Like that person who's driving down the street, gets distracted, looks up, sees a truck coming towards them, and the first thing, they do this. Does that mean in the resurrection they, they do this? Yeah. I don't know if they do exactly that, but you know, they'll see the face of Jesus, and we're, gonna, we're told the Bible indicates that will be raised with the same character that we had when we went down. Yeah. What thought we were thinking when we died, I don't know exactly, but hopefully it was of Christ. And, um, you know, I don't think that we're going to have lived a life for Christ and then find ourselves waking up against him. That's right. Nor will we live a life against him and find ourselves waking up in favor of him. We remember, and I think this might answer the question, Ella, that the Bible says we shall be changed. So your thinking your thinking is suddenly going to be remade. Not that you'd never think the same thoughts, but now you've got a heavenly mind, a recreated mind. 
So if when you died, you were thinking, who's going to feed the goldfish? I don't think 10 or 20 or 200 or 1,000 years later, that's going to be pressing on your mind when you look up and see Jesus. It seems the goldfish won't be of your utmost concern. Yeah, I agree with that. We'll be thinking those eternal heavenly thoughts. Yeah. Kathy says, can you explain Luke 20 verses 41 to 44? I never understood what point Jesus is trying to make. So why don't you take a look at that for us? Luke 20, verses 41 to 44. All right. Uh, He says, and uh, Jesus speaking, he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So he says some other things there, but that's the punchline. You want to tackle that, or you want me to tackle that? Oh, sure. In fact, what I want to do is look in Matthew chapter 22, where there's a parallel passage. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Who's the Messiah? He's someone's son. Whose? They said, Oh, he's the son of David. And so Jesus said to them, Well, how then does David in spirit call him Lord? Or why would David refer to this as Lord? The Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. If David called him Lord, how is he his son? Hmm. The son of David is the Messiah, right? Are you understanding that? And they're looking at that, they're going, oh, wait a second. This Jesus in front of us is referred to by many as the son of David. He's outing himself as the Messiah. Risky business. Mm -hmm. He was later crucified because they believed he was making himself the Messiah. They didn't like that very much at all. This is an exchange in which Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah. Notice he's talking to the tough nuts. He's not talking to the common people who received him gladly. He's not talking to his disciples. They're like, yeah, we're all in. He's talking to the, to the Pharisees, and he's saying, I really want you to see this. Look, if I show you this passage of Scripture where David spoke, that's going to make it really, really clear that me as the son of David, I'm actually the Lord. I'm actually the Messiah. It's fascinating. They listened to that, and, and this passage ends where it says, no one was able to answer him a word. Neither did any man dare to ask him any more questions from that day forth? They're like, it's powerful. Oh, oh my! Oh, he went to scripture and showed us that he's the Messiah. That's right. Can't say anything to that. Yep. We're not yep. even asking questions anymore. Yep. They, we sure hope that helps. They knew their place. Yeah, they did, and, and, and Jesus uh, wanted to understand that. So he is the physical son of David. He's in the lineage of David physically, but he's the son of God. So that's why David would call him Lord. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Claudia has a question. Here's Claudia's question. Talking to a friend, she said she never understood why God had to supply the Israelites with manna. Oh. I had thought to answer that they'd been slaves for thousands, hundreds of years when they were led to the desert. But when I looked in Exodus, it said that they had flocks and herds and very much cattle. Was that only for sacrifices? Um, Claudia, yeah, no. Uh, so you're in the desert. You've got a sheep and a, and a cow and a goat. What else? It would not take a million or so people or more very long to mow their way through the food supply if they had to eat just those things. 
what God did was provide them with food, a food supply. And clearly, clearly the fact that they had flocks and so forth uh, didn't encourage them because they're out here, oh, we're out here to die. Where are we going to eat out here? You let us out in the wilderness to die. They didn't say, oh, it's okay. We'll just, we'll just kill Levi's sheep over there. Didn't say that. There was a food scarcity. Their flocks weren't going to sustain them indefinitely in the wilderness. And God wanted to sustain them indefinitely in the wilderness. Manna came and he fed them what they had. Clearly wasn't enough and it wasn't adequate. I tell you what, it'd be pretty difficult to get by on, on only goat, sheep and bull for 40 years. That's right. And plus, God was giving them opportunities to increase their faith in him and their trust in him. Yes. And he was teaching them to depend on him daily for their needs. And he gave them, with that manna, very specific instructions on how to harvest it, how long to keep it. If they kept it longer than overnight, it would spoil, except on the Sabbath. And so God was teaching them lessons about spirituality, about the Sabbath, about trust, about faith, about obedience. And so they failed most of those tests. But nevertheless, God used a simple thing like manna to teach great, powerful lessons about his commandments and his character. So that was another aspect. Absolutely right. One more question. It is a great one. We could take a whole program for this, but we're going to get right to the point and share uh, our answer quickly. It's from David. David, my wife recently passed away after a very painful illness. We want to commiserate with you and, and, and say we're very, very sorry for your loss. All my life I've heard that all will either go into heaven or be damned to hell at death. I believe this until started watching your program. Now it seems like there are two deaths, one that you can come back from and one that you can't. But everyone I share that with is skeptical. Please advise. It's very important to me. Advise. Yeah, that's a great... Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, David, you're very perceptive about that. There is the physical death that we die from, that every person dies from. Jesus talked about this. And then there is the, the second death, which no person can come back from, except Jesus. Jesus died the second death on the cross, and he rose again because of his righteousness. And he promises to give us that same righteousness. So I'm glad you've been watching the program and learning the truth about this, and you are correct. You know, there's a lot of people that will be skeptical of it because they're not reading the Bible. You read the Bible, it's very plain. It's not just one obscure verse over here, but it's consistently all the way through. So you're on the right track, David. Keep looking at the Bible, keep studying. And, you know, your wife, as you have learned, is resting in the grave. And the day's going to come when you're going to see her again. You're going to believe in Jesus, as she, as she hopefully did, and you're going to see her and spend eternity with her. So we're thankful that uh, you're learning that truth, and hopefully it's bringing comfort to your heart. And here's a wonderful thing for David. My guess is that David and his wife went on some vacations together, mm-hmm. enjoyed some trips together, had some wonderful yeah. experiences traveling together. Hey, David, I've got news for you. One day soon, you and your wife together will be able to take the trip of a lifetime. Mm. You'll leave this earth under the strength and grace of Jesus and travel all the way to heaven. And you'll never, ever have to say goodbye again. Now, I'm, I'm simply saying that throughout eternity, you will know each other and you'll have a very, very special place in each other's existence. That, I think, is, um, is, is, is a given. So, yeah, Wes, thanks for answering that. And, and that's how it is. The dead die. And then they come back from that death if they have faith in Jesus. The lost ultimately will die the second death and never come back. But through faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, you can experience the first death, if that's what you're called to experience, and then the resurrection and then eternal life.
And thanks, Wes. It's been fun. Been a pleasure. And thank you. We've enjoyed it. Get our, your questions to us. Email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. With Wes Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw. This was Line Up Online, brought to you by It Is Written. <laughs>